0: Off we go. Thank thank you you all for your patience. Uh, uh, Very much indeed. Now, um, this is a paper that I've written with Warwick McKibben from the ANU for the OxRep issue on uh, economics and COVID. And as Cameron said, we had uh, a number of papers in this about international cooperation of various kinds. Uh, and and this macro on trade, on macro, on finance uh, and and on the funding of the World Health Organization, four very different ones. Let's go specific in this talk for the next 15 minutes or so on macro issues. Everybody's been complaining about how this looks so different from when Gordon Brown was running the world in, in the way that he so loved doing in early 2009, I have to say, with extraordinary cooperation from Barack Obama and all those gathered in that summit in London in April 2009. Uh, but when when we slid into the COVID crisis, many of my colleagues turned to me and said, well, listen, David, what exactly uh, macro cooperation do you think is needed? It's all very well, blah, blah, let's cooperate. but." Fun and games is not what cooperation is about. It's it's about a purpose. And here is (coughs) the story. Uh, The key points uh, are about there being a coordinated macro policy response, not yet a content uh, as what that shall be, with leadership uh, completely missing. And we'll talk about that in questions. Uh, There will be a role for the IMF uh, in the background, and we're going to run this uh, proposal through a model and show you just what a big difference what we've done would make. So uh, what kind of... I'm still... The the rabbit isn't out of the hat yet, very deliberately. What macro levers might we pull? Well, excuse me, interest rates at zero bound... There's nowhere to go with that. Remember, uh, in uh, after the dot-com crash, uh, zero, interest rates cut instantly. Um, can't go there. Uh, of course, central banks are doing a remarkable amount on liquidity and confidence. In pre- pre- we prevented a financial crisis uh, happening as a spillover from COVID in a very remarkable way, and there's a whole seminar about that, but I'm not going to talk about that today. Uh, uh, Many countries have loan guarantees, uh, and and there's a whole lot of micro stuff to discuss about support for firms, but I still haven't got there. This is where I'm going, to fiscal policy. And let's skip uh, forward one slide and I'll come back to this one, just look at this extraordinary picture from the IMF fiscal monitor, which shows spending in red as a percent of GDP um, uh, on, on the right-hand side uh, <coughs> um, uh, 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 with uh, G20 as a percent of of GDP, very large numbers. Look at, uh, the United Kingdom much lower, but look at the US and Australia, um, th- 3% of GDP. Uh, it, these are very, very big fiscal numbers, uh, and the revenue me- merit measures are much larger. Um, uh, 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 in, in Italy, uh, uh, I said that wrongly, the equity and particular, the guarantees uh, are much larger, um, and loans. And we've all got reservations about loans because they have to be repaid. But you'll see just what a huge difference there are across countries, some of which have been able to do it. And others now go to the left of the picture, Mexico, Turkey, Russia, Indonesia, Saudi Arabia, India, in particular, Brazil, tiny numbers. And you ask, why is it? And and let's just get a, a picture of how big this is. Uh, I, I've never done seminars or or, or simulations in trillions before. There's new world for me. Uh, but pin down the numbers. US GDP is about twenty one trillion. Well, this picture from the IMS Fiscal Monitor adds up to ten trillion. The world has injected um, to 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 help fix problems in. Domestic economies, not cooperation across lent across countries is just spending at home. So it's our furlough and our job, Australia's job guarantee. And those, those that is the very major part of it. But there have been other large fiscal expenditures. And the, this paper is all about Mexico, Turkey, Indonesia, uh, India. Down there on the left have not been able to do this. Answer, question, why not? Answer, if they tried, there would be a currency attack of international financial markets worrying both about uh, increased fiscal debt and uh, deficits and and the increases in debt, um, but also about the current account deficits that these countries will run. Uh, and worrying about whether the country itself would become insolvent. So, in the back of this imaginary g twenty meeting in Saudi Arabia later this year that agrees this, there would have to be uh, cooperation from the International Monetary Fund and international agreements to make that cooperation possible. so that, roughly speaking, the financial security of countries that did this would be guaranteed. Big ask, but central to the story. Now, what um, are we thinking that the gains to coordination would consist of? This is a coordination which simply allows some countries, the ones on the left of that picture that haven't had a fiscal expansion, to do for an expansion more like what is the particular the picture for the countries on the right. Um, and and uh, also, we believe important to study and to investigate is we think that an agreement of this kind would reduce global risk premium. Uh, now, we, there's a long story about this and fitting this model to the data uh, which McKibben has done with great care has involved a lot of thinking about risk premia, And I invite you all to have a look at it to investigate ha- what he's done and how. Uh, we have, in stimulating how bad the world is before the problem begins, there have been increases in both the uh, risk premia, which people apply to their future permanent income, an increase in the uh, uh, risk premium ac- applied to most countries relative to the US, the uh, US being the safe haven. And thirdly, and importantly, a very significant increase in the equity risk premium. Now, what we've done uh, in, in our um, simulations of the base run before we start this game off is imagine that those risk premium to uh, discounting of per- disposable income and country risk premium are large in the first year, half in the second year, and all gone again in the third year. Even in the bad world, but the bad world with continuing uh, COVID problems, we imagine no immediate move to solving the 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 the, the vaccine problem. Uh, still contains an e- equity risk premium in. In the simulations of the base run before our our exercise. and why this is on the story, on the screen is that what we've imagining in what I'm going to show you is that the cooperation uh, between countries fiscally is also combined with a uh, reduction of the equity risk premium because everybody can see the cooperation between nations acting internationally. Um, Just before I show you the results, just remind yourself of past exercises in international cooperation. It's not a merry story. Uh, The only good story, uh, there are two, and there are uh, two or three bad stories on this page. One good story is way back in 1980 with the second oil crisis. There was a genuine global cooperation by nations together to fiscally stimulate. Um, Much later on in the early 90s, there was a a considerable discussion about cooperation with monetary policy in an inflationary world. People were concerned, and this was a Thatcher-Reagan game played out amongst uh, people amused in economic seminars. Suppose Thatcher does... a very tight monetary policy and appreciates the exchange rate of Britain, then that will make imports into America more expensive and imports into Britain cheaper and will lower our inflation and push up theirs. Well, guess what? The US would do the same to us and this two world game would produce a really bad outcome. Uh, Cooperation would involve them understanding not to do this. We all know that cooperation of this kind didn't actually happen, but it was where much of the initial understanding about international cooperation in macroeconomics was first uh, thought about, discussed, and worked through. Next was the uh, GFC in uh, 2008-9, where the cooperation led by Barack Obama and Gordon Brown involved very great fiscal expansion of the kind that I'm going to be talking about here. But a, a, a grim story uh, is to remind you of what happened just a year later at the G20 summit in Toronto in 2010, when our Chancellor George Osborne teamed up with, uh, with, uh, with Scheibler uh, and with uh, the US Treasury to cooperate in austerity. Uh, Austerity led to much less fiscal uh, work in helping solve the crisis than most people thought desirable, but it also led to countries trying to do quantitative easing and depreciate their exchange rate and steal jobs from each other. The cooperation in austerity turned into exchange rate warfare, in a way that was extremely unsatisfactory what we're trying to do is something most like what it says on this slide about what happened during the gfc so what's the numbers very large numbers uh you remember i said that uh us gdp is of the order of 21 trillion and advanced countries at the moment have stimulated to the extent of about 10 trillion, huge numbers, the McKibben-Vines exercise in this paper that I'm talking about would put an extra 3 trillion onto government debt in the uh, countries of the kind I've described over a period of five years. (coughs) Let's... um, Pass quite quickly to the results, but just before I do so, I want to uh, just say a little bit about how to reach an agreement. Um, Just as the slide and I flick back here about international cooperation in macro policy doesn't produce very many good pictures or stories, part of the reason is that international um, cooperation is of a very particular kind in a world where there's no political oversight because, of course, no global government. And those those of you in the audience who've worked on the IMF and the World Bank know very well about conditionality, namely an international institution imposing requirements on countries which are given benefits uh, through the international institution. That's to say you get a cooperative global assistance, but there's people there in the background going like this, making sure you do what you're told. What we're advocating is something much more like 2009. Get together, you identify the problem, you agree what's going to be done, and then you let countries get on with doing it themselves. No enforced conditionality. A little footnote, disputes in europe about the way that greece and italy have been treated by the european commission that's exactly the kind of issue that i'm footnoting here which could have a much larger discussion in our questions and in further analysis we talk a bit about it in the paper now here's some pictures uh, and i'm sure you can just about read the top line uh, which says for the critical countries which i'm going to identify as a2 and e2 uh, gdp goes up by 2.7 and 2.4 percent very large numbers as a result of this injection now i'm going to tell you a bit about what countries are the a1 countries Or all down below, you can see all the places like Australia, US, Canada, uh, France, UK, that have already done the fiscal expansion they need. These are countries standing here saying international cooperation involves us helping the rest. Right. So there's got to be some rest. Well, let's divide the rest into the rest amongst advanced countries and the rest in the best of the world. Well, who are the rest amongst advanced countries uh, who haven't been able to do the fiscal expansion that they want and need? Well, at the time of the writing of this paper, the answer was basically Italy, uh, Spain and some other members of the European Union. Held in place by the European Union's fiscal rules and the Financial Times and other papers were just full of complaints about how the Commission was preventing them doing what they look across at Germany, France, and, and Britain and say, this is ridiculous, we're not allowed. You and I all know that there's been an agreement last week for tooth and nail to the end with the European Recovery Fund. What's not yet clear is how much Italy will actually be able to do. But you might say that Italy, has been, Spain, a few others, have been pushed in the direction of McKibben and Vine's and smile and say, isn't that a good idea? Um, What's the um, non-advanced country, emerging market country uh, that's done all it wants? Well, there's only one of them in the E1 column, that's China. And uh, China is not constrained internationally and has been enabled to do exactly what it wanted. So the real deal is E2 countries, and look at the bottom of the list, it goes on and on in alphabetical order: Argentina, Brazil, Indonesia, India, Mexico, Russia, Saudi Arabia, South Africa, Turkey, and rest of this and rest of that. Heaps of countries, all of whom in this simulation have been entitled to do this massive fiscal injection. Uh, 6% of GDP in the first year. in the second year and 2% in the third year, uh, mirroring how badly the COVID shock is at the beginning and dwindling away, Uh, discuss why dwindling and blah, blah. Later on, uh, I've just given you a picture of the the shape of the process. And so the big deal is the E2 countries with GDP going up by 2.2%. Now, Covid has caused a collapse in GDP of a number order of twelve or thirteen percent. So this is no McKibben and Vines aren't fixing the world, but this is a very big amelioration of the problem. And if you look at the employment numbers, they're very significantly larger, and that's because uh, the the uh, the. Detailed work in the model that we're using uh, enables us to talk about a reduction in real wages in the countries that does this and also changes in relative prices. That Two things that enable employment to go up quite a bit more than GDP. Essentially, this stimulus enables expenditure to go up by those who receive the income from the stimulus and the expenditure. Is concentrated on labour intensive industries. That's the shorthand version of the story. Uh, Now, look at the fiscal position. Uh, Ratio of GDP uh, in the first country, uh, (coughs) um, uh, the budget deficit, uh, and we've we've got the numbers there uh, minus means, uh, but the the deficits got worse, and in the E2 countries, uh, 1,000, uh, trip. Get the numbers right: one trillion three hundred billion. Uh, uh, why this is a tax cut? Tax cuts cause increased fiscal deficit. Look at the current account position, the trade deficit, uh, the the. Trade deficit of these countries minus 715 billion, uh, um, very big trade deficit, uh, because you're stimulating the economy by cutting taxes. Uh, let now let's look at what happens to the rest of the world. Well, the rest of the world benefits. Why? Just straightforward locomotive effects, Expand, expansion in one part of the world sucks in um, uh, 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 imports from uh, the other part of the world. So there's an export boom in the parts of the world that aren't doing this. That's a positive spillover. I let you spend more money, and when you spend it, some of it will be spent on my stuff, roughly speaking, is, is the simple version of the story. Uh, <coughs> How does it work? Well, uh, uh, straightforward open economy macroeconomics tells us how it works. Fiscal expansion by tax cuts in all that long list of countries leads them to have more expenditure, more less deflation than there would have been, uh, depending on the details of the simulation. In some countries, actually, some more inflation. Um, tighter monetary policy. Remember that we're talking in the COVID world in which monetary policy has been very loose. So what tighter monetary policy means is not quite as loose monetary policy. That's how we run the McKibben model. And, and of course, the currency will be not as depreciated as it would have been. Uh, That's what you'd expect. These external emerging market countries have suffered very significantly because of falling exchange rates as a result of COVID, the collapse of their export revenues, being able to expand and have tighter monetary policy than they would have, and having a more appreciated exchange rate is all part of a good package. But what do we see in the other countries, you and me in advanced countries, we will somebody's appreciation is somebody else's depreciation. So not only do we have locomotive effects of, of, of Mexico and Brazil and whatever, purchasing more of our imports, but also our currencies are somewhat more depreciated uh, and more competitive and we export more that that way. So you would expect me to say uh, that this is all a big deal, wouldn't you? And <laughs> It's a big deal. You'd expect me to say it's a good deal. Uh, but we come to, back to where I began, and uh, this is open for questions. Um, there needs to be leadership to make this happen, which is just not there. And in particular, there needs to be support from the International Monetary Fund that would enable the countries that I've described in that long list to be able to uh, achieve the extra budget deficits and the extra current account deficits without being subject to international speculation and currency attack. So Cameron, that's my story. Uh, Thank you very much.
1: Fantastic, David. Thank you very much indeed. Now, um, after uh, a brief Q&A with me, because I'm going to abuse my position as chair here and ask you some questions directly, uh, we do have time for Q&A. There's three lined up already, uh, but um, if you you wish to ask David a question, do hit that ask a question button on the bottom of your screen. So um, to to kind of, I'm a simple person at heart and What I'd like to do here is just really um, cut to the the what, how, and the why here. So I started as you were talking, indeed as I was reading your paper, um, asking why isn't an individual national response here enough? Why doesn't individual nations just doing what they narrowly would think to be in their self-interest, why doesn't that add up to something sensible at the global level? And the first point you've made is that, well, there's an awful lot of countries who actually just can't help themselves here. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, yeah. and so part of the story is, is simply kind of helping your neighbour when when they're literally down uh, yeah. and many, many of their people are dying. And the reason they can't help themselves is because they've got limited fiscal positions, concerns about debt and currency attacks. So then the question is, well, what, what can we do to help them? Well, we can... Chuck them a whole lot of cash in in the in the form of um, IMF-related facilities or others, and we'll come back to that in a second. But but why would we do that other than just the goodness of our hearts? And you've given us three answers to that question. I mean, the first is that there is this locomotive effect. If half the world goes down, half the world's demand gone, and the whole you know you end up with a global recession, and, and we're in a mess as well. So no human is an island, and our economies are all interconnected. That's the, that's for me the big reason. Yeah. Second reason you've given is reduced risk premium, which as I understood it was um, firms need to be confident of future demand levels. Uh, and if you've got a large coordinated, you know, clearly communicated multinational governmental stimulus, then firms are going to think okay, it's it's going to be a, it's going to be all right. I'll invest and create jobs and so on and so forth. That's and then, and then the third one you gave was because actually if we are to have a, an expansion you want a balanced expansion and just an expansion by uh the a1 countries doesn't give you balanced uh, economic activity around the world so, so i think that's the core of your argument now if i come to a, a key question actually it's in the in the list of questions been asked by uh, someone called kagila or kajila um how does this actually work how's it governed obviously the imf um could take a number of actions here but the IMF is perhaps not beholden to its member state uh, countries but it uh, you know has to has to work with them um so so what exactly is the pathway not in an ideal world but in a kind of plausibly realistic world you know who should do what here to, to make this coordination real um well
0: uh, uh, Put Italy on one side, but it is a member of a monetary union, I'll come back to that. Um, all the other countries that I've described are uh, self; they're countries that manage their own monetary policy. Uh, they can literally do a tax cut, big numbers of the kind that I've described, which injects more money. Now this. Uh, uh in in elementary uh, macroeconomics 101 this is an outward shift of the is curve and it will be a, a, a appropriately dealt with by monetary policy if there's no inflationary pressure then the lm curve will simply simply shift out with it if we're in the world that we're studying in our model where there's something like a taylor rule in place the interest rate might rise a bit in order to manage any inflationary pressures. But it's a, it's a fiscal expansion that creates extra public debt and monetary policy is accommodating and constraining only to the extent of there's inflation. So everyone can get on, I nearly said, get on an aeroplane after the G20 summit. It's all virtual. Just simply turn around when they've done it and say, OK, guys, this is what we're going to do in our parliament tomorrow. That's at home. But what's the global stuff? Well, in the, um, think back to the Asian financial crisis. Uh, rescuing Korea involved those bizarre meetings in hotels in Seoul on Christmas Eve, and the IMF didn't have anywhere near enough money. So the point I'm wanting to make is there had to be then a big whip round. And... And there would need to be a very big whip round. In addition, the IMF, the kind of numbers that the IMF has is of the order, depends who, who's borrowed what, we're between half a trillion and a trillion, trillion max total. It's a very small number in, in the kind of calculations that we're doing here. So uh, we're we're looking at international cooperation, uh hopefully in more orderly way than just a straight whip round on the tele- on the telephone on as it were christmas eve um look look at how badly we've done so far there was a push at the g20 meeting in april to increase sdrs special drawing rights which are for those of you who don't know um, the, the our international fund Monetary fund magic money uh, actually made up internationally out of no contributions by the contributive contributing nations. This would have been the right time to have an SDR increase. The push was for something like three hundred billion. So it would have been uh, given the 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 funds numbers are between five hundred billion a trillion. This would have been very important. It didn't happen. So. Uh, long answer to a short question and uh, it can be turned into one sentence sdr increase please
1: okay great uh sdr increase please but actually no real prospect of anything at the size and magnitude that would be commensurate with the trillions that we would need we're talking hundreds of billions still in a good scenario Uh, and that kind of brings me on to the second question What's the role, do you think, of um, debt relief here? Because part of the challenge for the countries who can't help themselves is a debt overhang or or the fear of one. Um, Could we be thinking more cleverly about deals? We need a few kind of souped up investment bankers doing debt for nature swaps or debt for something swaps. Yeah. Uh, where there is a deal to be done that is in both parties' interests and in the collective global interest. Very definitely.
0: Uh, If you and my friends in the audience would like to tune in next week, uh, Chris Adam will be talking about precisely this. Uh, I'm just flicking my paper to see where sub-Saharan Africa comes in in, in the regions of the McKibben model and I have to tell you, it's called rest of the world because sub-Saharan Africa is quantitatively very small, uh, but catastrophically damaged by COVID uh, because. Um, and and, and uh, a very simple understanding is that the prices of many, many of their exports have collapsed with the, the collapse in the terms of trade that COVID has caused. Um, so they're short of revenue. But they're already heavily borrowed and they need, like us, look at the news headlines every day. Countries in Africa are unable to do what we've done in in supporting our populations in this time of difficulty. Uh, Debt relief, absolutely central. uh, And um, Chris Adam, the number I've taken, Chris Adam's done a whole paper on this for for Oxrep, which is a very interesting piece of work. fits absolutely like that into the McKibben Vines exercise. And the numbers look like between two and three times the normal amount of aid for sub sub-Saharan African countries. That's not kind of excuse me, could we have 20% more aid? This is kind of more than doubling. And now globally the numbers are small. That's still that's still only talking much less than uh, 500 billion. Uh, but but for these countries, it's absolutely make or break.
1: Thanks. Um, there's a, there's some very good questions here in the list, and let me just group some of them together. Um, quite a few relate to, really, the concept of uncertainty here. Oh, yeah. There's uncertainty as to whether we're in a recession or depression, as Patrick uh, points out. There's... Uncertainties of whether we'll have a vaccine sooner or later or ever. Uh, and there's a an un- un- big kind of uncertain question about, as a result, how much money needs to be on the table. What does good macro coordination look like in these sort of circumstances where we face some pretty deep uncertainties? Very good question.
0: I suppose I would go back to... Uh, the global financial crisis um, and look at the mistakes that were made. I, I, I'm going to give you an evasive answer, um, which is uh, we will we will certainly not be able to do whatever it takes, that magic phrase. Um, so I'm going to turn it around and say it, it will be helpful to do whatever it is possible because whatever that is will turn out not to be enough. Um, properly evasive answer, but okay. look back at what happened in after the global financial crisis when uh, the package in London, 2%, much smaller numbers than now, 2% global fiscal stimulus and an agreement not to put up tax rates when, when there was collapse in fiscal revenues. Um, perfect for a year, and then they all got to get together in 2010 in Toronto and started doing austerity. And wound it back. The real risk is that intelligence, you know, not as big as what we're proposing here, but whatever can be done, is at risk of the debt maniacs doing exactly to sensibleness what the debt maniacs did to sensibleness after the global financial crisis.
1: Okay. So, so there's absolutely no risk of us doing too much here. Uh, no, no. OK, fine. So we do we do what we can, and, and that addresses the uncertainty. Now, um, there's another cluster of... Yeah, I have to defend that in the following way, um,
0: that COVID is a supply-side problem, uh, and there's been much discussion about, well, you know, might we run into inflationary problems short of stuff because people aren't working, and it's a supply-side issue. The, the work that Warwick and I have done and many others have done suggests that the demand repercussions of this supply constraint are, I nearly said, much larger. They're certainly larger than the supply side problems. Why? Because it's depressed investment. Although people will, consumption smooth and you know, bad time, you spread it out the difficulties. That would tend to make you think that this is a supply-constrained economy. But if everyone's pessimistic, go back to that uncertainty issue about the future, they will invest less. So you add the investment reduction to the consumption smoothing, kind of partly reduction, and the modelling shows you get really bad demand shortage. That's why I'm not worried about inflation. And I'm not worried about the debt austerity issue. But I thought it important to say that, because otherwise, this kind of response about supply shortages. Are-
1: yeah, no, fair it's- enough. And uh, th- this is clearly a big issue. We will go into it in, in further detail in this series on the 16th of September with uh, Professor Don Farmer and Maria del Rio Chinana on their paper on the impact of the supply and the demand shocks. So Of Don and I and that group, and you know the paper.
0: Indeed, we've talked a lot about that.
1: Great. Um, So I was moving on to another cluster of questions. John has had a question voted up six times and room twice, Mm -hmm. Uh, and this is around uh, the interrelationship between macroeconomic cooperation on the one hand and cooperation on health and healthcare and climate. On the other hand, and, and then relatedly, how progress on the health side and the vaccination side affects development, affects these economic issues. Is is it feasible you, that you could imagine either strong cooperation economically with no cooperation on health and climate or the flip side, strong cooperation on the health and the climate side, but actually we yeah. can't interact together on the economy?
0: The big deal question, uh, and it takes us right back to 1944 and Bretton Woods. Uh, people in the run-up to Bretton Woods, there was a push to try and do everything. Let's do trade as well, and let's do the other stuff as well. And 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 intelligence said, let's have focus. Uh, and they did the fund and the bank, and then they did uh, the W. What became the GATT. San Francisco a year, two years later in 1946, and in 1945 they did the UN. Uh, uh, but I, 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 I think focus is important. That's point one. But point two, two, have got to be positive externalities across these cooperation areas so that if you um, cooperate macroeconomically, you're going to be helping fund stuff on deep – uh, on di- disease reduction, if you do, uh, uh, i'm speaking too loosely on, on fighting COVID and stopping deaths and enabling, enabling people to have a better world in which to go back to work. So my McKibben Sachs stuff provides money for that stuff, but that done well would of course make the macro environment better. Uh, so it's, it's obviously important um, to, to do that um but 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 but, but I caution against jumbling it all up in a big global deal, and mm-hmm. I, let me just have, have a footnote for smiling Cameron uh, the, is he's got the paper on on, on the green uh, recovery. Now, the McKibben Vines paper was very deliberately evasive. We just cut taxes uh, bec- and stuck it in the model and did some numbers. But of course, you would not want to just cut taxes. You try and do fiscal stuff in a—I a, 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 nearly said—a focused in a particular direction sort of way. So that I can see a cooperation of this and and the Cameron-Hepburn stuff as well.
1: Well, I have to say, I'm I'm pleased to see a few questions along those lines being posted. But I, I won't uh, prioritise my own personal interests unless they get upvoted to the extent that I can't ignore yeah. them. People. Uh, but actually, on, on the question of Bretton Woods and how to pull this together, do, do we learn anything from the fact that the EU did manage to get its act together, as you say, hammered out uh, at great length, uh, under great duress to the last minute, etc. Uh, do we learn anything positive or perhaps negative about cooperation and how it can or should work from the EU Recovery Fund? That's Valerie's question.
0: Very good question. So I'm going to hear Valerie's my attempt to um, take that question and run and say the big non-COVID macro issue in the world is U.S.-China trade. Uh, But it's all tangled up with China and the Belt and Road and tension in Asia about China. Now... Uh, uh as a student of Bretton Woods, um, I like telling this story about Keynes uh, because it uh, it's illuminating in a very Keynes-like way. He was asked just before he died um, to face up to reality. And reality was the dispute about Lend-Lease Treaty and, and the famous Article 7 of that which gave the US, because it lent all this money to the UK to fight the war uh, under completely uncertain terms, but it was a loan, gift, God knows, it was just money to buy some warships. Um, But Article 7 gave the US the right to insist on the conditions of, of the reconstruction of the world order afterwards. And guess what? These preconditions look like pulling to pieces the the British Empire, uh, including imperial trade preference. And this person said to Ch- Keynes, for Britain, the post-war uh, priority is preserving our trading position in our trading partners against uh, global attacks on our markets. It's a trade issue. Why, why, Maynard, have you left spent the last three years worrying about the international monetary system? And Keynes said now I'm turning into dramatic rhetoric, it's all in the the speech, says until you've sorted out the macro, you can't begin to do the trade stuff properly. And his particular story was, you just start doing trade calculations and then exchange rates change violently and you don't know what you're doing in your calculations. Now, there is, in the Trump-China trade war stuff, There is a complete misunderstanding that a lot of the US current account difficulty uh, is, and and including, no, I'll say it this way, is about uh, what economists would call absorption, the amount of expenditure at home relative to output production at home. So it's the level of demand rather than the ratio of relative prices that's fundamentally driving that trade position. Furthermore, people who think about it sensibly understand that international trade is a a global network of stories. And for the US, what matters is its overall trade position, not its particular trade with a particular country, because that all maps out in global crisscross of trading relationships between countries. So um, to the questionnaire, I would say understand uh, my country trevor swan's most but the most famous australian contribution to uh, macroeconomics in fact economics in total is a famous thing called the swan diagram and this shows that for a country facing an external position what is important to get right is both its relative prices which includes of course protection and or exchange rates, but also its ratio of expenditure to income and 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 trained macroeconomists like me go around the world saying, let's try and get the macro right so that once we've done that, we can then begin to think about these trade problems, which people are fighting each other so hard about.
1: Okay, fair enough. Um, there's uh, a good question here, which directly relates to that, which is um, how will we know when we've got the macro right? So, so, yeah. so at what point do you say enough is enough? You know, we, when, when do we stop? How big does this need to be? Now, I guess in some sense, you've answered that by saying, well, uh, we're not going to do a big enough response. So, you know, forget it, just go as hard as you can. But presumably, That There's a separate question going as long as you can. Presumably this doesn't go on for five years. I mean, how are we going to know when when we need to stop? And is that related to the vaccine? Absolutely,
0: yes. Uh, Just imagine if our life is like this still six years' time from now. I'm, (laughs) along with many people, trying to figure out whether we can cross the English Channel for our holiday next month or not. Uh, just imagine if your life is 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 going to be like that. So, so the uncertainty is hugely important. Um, I, here's, here's an institutional response to your question. How do we show sure, it? So I'm turning your question into how are we sure we're not doing too much? Well, guess what? In a world of great uncertainty, what you need is trusted institutions, um, to not 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 constraining rules, but delegation to institutions that you trust to 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 respond well in the circumstances. Now you say, "Come on, David, please be a bit more precise." Uh, important part of how we'll know. Two parts. Um, whether we've done enough or too much, is, of course, the inflation problem. And the resilience of central banks that stand for, of course, financial stability, but also uh, price stability, that's to say inflation. We've never gone for zero, not above a a steady low number. Um, and, And... so one answer is, when inflation threatens, we'll know we've done nearly too much. That's, that's a way of turning that question into a process answer of an institution that you trust um, dealing with it. I, I have to take the second one. When will you know if motoring madly towards levels of public debt as high as in Japan When when will you know if that's just madness and too much? Well, the answer will be when long-term real interest rates look like they're going to start seriously rising. Mm -hmm. And that's why we've established our fiscal council. Uh, It hasn't had to do very much in the last five years, except mainly pronounce about the reliability of forecasts when... People thought the politicians were cheating. Well, that's important also, but its fundamental purpose is to help us understand this set of questions about public debt. If we've got central banks we trust, and and fiscal council, the Europeans now have fiscal council institutions in, in in much of the uh, European Monetary Union architecture. If we though, see, you see how I'm evading the specific question by giving an institute, and it's not evasion, really, it's properly replying to the question by giving an institutional response of processes that we trust.
1: Okay, um, and we've got time for one more. I'm afraid the, uh, the question on, uh, uh, I'll leave this with you to ponder, David, do, do we really want to be uh, re-stimulating our economy when we know we're on a pathway to catastrophe on the climate side Anyway, uh, that, that was the question that I'm not going to ask you to answer because um, because it's been outvoted by a question on... Look,
0: look, look I know I'm going to die uh, between now and sometime, but I do want to have a holiday in Greece before I die. Uh, that's my frivolous answer to that question.
1: Well, but I'm
0: threatening to derail the conversation, sorry.
1: No, I'm sure you could take one on a synthetic fuel that's carbon neutral or, or, or an ammonia or, or take a beautifully... That's exactly, driven, that's right. ...train journey or something that But um, the real question, the last question is on populism. So how do we deal with macroeconomic coordination and the kind of macro politics given the rise of populism? I mean, you could look at this and say, well, the populists haven't been doing so well they've been ignoring the science and lo and behold when you do that you have a a bit of a disaster uh but how does that affect the the propensity of some of the key states to actually come forth and cooperate when actually they're they're pandering to you know frankly domestic instincts uh within the voters it's a very good question
0: and i'm going to give you a a strange proud of my own original home country, Australia. Um, Australia had a, a, a really bad set of uh, macroeconomic policy institutions. Uh, at its center, uh, extreme protectionism, uh, and it did battle with Argentina in the 1960s to be the most heavily protected country in the world. and. And the institution that uh, there were some very important economists, many of the audience will have heard of Max Corden, whose, whose ideas were fundamentally important in teaching Australians about the madness of that. And uh, But there was also an institution called what's become the Productivity Commission, which is a, a widely trusted, and I heard one of my respected colleagues in Australia describing this institution up there with the Central Bank of Australia, and I would say this wouldn't I, along with the universities, as the three great kinds of institutions of state in, in in the country of Australia. And this Productivity Commission is a place where trusted economists, yes, trusted ones, are asked to write detailed reports on questions of national interest, which inevitably involve weighing up costs and benefits. Uh, of policy changes, and this is in, this is not invading the question. It's it's about populism because protectionist was protectionism in Australia was was a very populist kind of strategy in its heyday, and and what this institution has done is enable the Australian polity, uh, the Australian civil society, to begin to understand how to think well about economic questions. And, and I'm actually working with some colleagues uh, at the minute to push for the establishment of such an institution in, in my, my adopted country, in Britain, because, of course, like everybody, I'm thinking about Brexit, but I'm also thinking about um, the reform of health and social care and all these deeply important, political economy questions, if analysed well by people who are trusted, um, will make a big difference to populism. You would say that, wouldn't you, a, a, a university professor thinks that the power of ideas might help win important battles, but I actually think
1: it's true. Well, I, I'm, uh, I have some doubts about some of the things you just said, but I certainly have no doubt about the importance of ideas one way or the other, whether they're populist or, or, or not, uh, in driving much of much of what happens here. So uh, that's a good place on which to leave it. David, you started by saying there are some big issues here and you would say that. Well, I think nobody's going to deny you uh, the fact that talking about an issue where literally 10 trillion has already been Put at stake and probably another 10 trillion uh, is going to come is a big issue it clearly is big we've got a few more big issues to address in this series before we'll close next up tomorrow at 3 pm is professor chris adam on the economics of the pandemic as it relates to sub-saharan africa and then after the summer break we'll come back uh with the talk i mentioned from donan maria on the impact of supply and demand shocks uh, on industry and occupations Mariana Mazzucato, a familiar name, I suspect, to many of you, on the 13th of, o- of October on a uh, nicely titled The Big Failure of Small Government. Mm-hmm. And with any luck, uh, a sneaky, sneak uh, preview that we may uh, have Yulia Giza from the Bank of England, who's done a paper joint with Andy Haldane, uh, on, on more of these sorts of uh, questions uh, ar- around, the, around the monetary uh-huh. man- very fiscal, you know, economic side of things. So stay tuned. Uh, Join me for sub-Saharan Africa and the pandemic tomorrow at 3 p.m. Thanks very much, everybody. Terrific. Thank you.